John chapter 4. We will be in verses 1 through 15 this morning. There is a curious thing about the Word of God in that it continues mainly because it is written by a singular author in the ultimate sense. It continues to refer to itself over and over again. When we address the realities of salvation's history, as God has interacted with his people throughout many centuries in different ways and in different times and in different methods, we find that God has foreshadowed so many things that come clear in the gospel of Christ and are spelled out to us in the epistles. And so when we come to something like this, where we see him interacting with a woman from Sychar in Samaria, in front of a well that Jacob, the namesake of Israel himself, had dug many, many centuries before, it stands to reason that we should pay attention to the things that are being taught and the things that are being encouraged in our perspective. Many of us have heard this story before, Jesus and the woman from Samaria. We know that their conversation is an unusual one, that her timing to come to the well is an odd one, that his requesting of her water is not acceptable culturally. But I'm going to encourage us to see something much grander going on here, especially as Jesus says that there is a specific purpose for which he has come into this world, and this well is part of that picture. It is not just happenstance that they are standing outside Sychar. It is not just happenstance that they are at Jacob's well. And the placement of all of this also, not happenstance. All of it intentional, all of it under the direction of the will of God. And I want you to appreciate that today because while the latter half of this story gets a lot of the focus, God is seeking worshipers who will worship him in spirit and in truth, that will be for the next time we're in John. I really want to see the setting here. So let me encourage you to stand in honor of God and his word as we come to John chapter 4, verses 1 through 15. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well, and it was about the sixth hour, that is noon. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her and said, if you knew the gift of God... And who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw water with and the well is very deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, 
give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Our Father, we thank you for this passage. It is a tremendous truth that we have found on the lips of Jesus here in these words. That even something as normative as our thirst was designed to push us on to see you. Father, we pray that just as our hunger and thirst for righteousness are satiated in Christ, may our satisfaction come from your word. We pray, Father, as we see the reaction of this woman, we have a similar reaction to appeal to you for the living water that is without payment to appeal to you for that which satisfies for all eternity rather than that which satisfies for a time. We pray, Father, that you would delight our hearts with the truth of your word. We know that such delight lays way outside of our natural proclivities. And so we pray that your spirit illumine our hearts to love your word. We pray, Father, that he also in further illumine our hearts to love one another. We pray for these miracles this morning in your son's name. Amen. You may well be seated. Familiar passage, yes, an easy one to remember from the time of Sunday school, I would imagine, as you're growing up. It's It's a fine story that teaches of the realities of things we all understand, the need to drink, the difficulties of people that are different than us, and the familiarity of the message of Jesus Christ. But it's something else to behold when it happened right there in person. When Jesus was speaking to this woman, there was nothing in her that expected a strange day or an unusual day. She was coming out, just as she had done many times before, at a time that was unusual as far as for the habits of people in Samaria. She was coming at a time where nobody else would be there. Not the other women from Sychar, not the other men, not travelers, for it was in the center of the day in the middle of the desert. Who would want to be out there at this time? And there you have some of the things revealed to us. Only a certain type of woman would be out there at this time. And here's the other thing. Someone who had some measure of self-respect would also not have been there. And yet, she stumbles upon a rabbi. Jesus comes and sits at this well, not to draw water for himself, but just to sit and wait. This was the path that he was to take from Galilee down to Jerusalem. It says in the text that he must needs to go this way. The reality is there were three different ways to take, two of them through Samaria and one of them not. Many people took this road through Samaria, but they would not go to the cities and interact with the people. They would just keep on. The same goes for this well. We're not going to draw their water out. We'll carry enough water for ourselves on the 30 to 40 mile trek from Galilee all the way down to Jerusalem, and we will not stay and we will not take part, nor will we interact. That was a two-way street from Jews to Samaritans and Samaritans to Jews. They did not like each other. They had different understandings. They had essentially different religious texts that they held in highest esteem. The Samaritan Pentateuch, they only held to the first five books of the Bible and only their version of it. They did not hold that it was Jerusalem and Mount Zion that was the center of God's interaction with his people or where he was to be worshipped. They held that it was Mount Gerizim in their capital. 
And as we will find when we come back to this text next time, you will see her trying to solve the unsolvable question, which mountaintop is right? But Jesus is not there to talk about mountaintops. He's not there to talk politics. He is not there to even talk ethnicities, nationalities, or countries of origin. He's there to speak of salvation. She is there to get a drink. And one small necessity that is met in her life, Christ uses to depict one of the most fascinating aspects of salvation in that it is not a salvation for a time. It is not something that cleans you for a week or for a day. It's something that eternally satisfies both you and God. I wonder how quick we are to forget that. I wonder how quick we are to forget that salvation not only has satisfied God's wrath, but it also ought to satisfy our desire. How easy is it for us to put other desires, things that we would prefer, outcomes that we would desire, ahead of the truth and the plan and purpose of God? It was not a culturally advantageous thing for him to pass through Samaria, but it was in accordance with the will of God. He must, needs to go through Samaria. Now, as we will find out in the following text, many people came to salvation through his ministry and just a few days in Samaria, including this woman. But what we're introduced to her here at the front end is the very reason that Jesus was leaving was on one side not to pull from John the Baptist's ministry. While we learned that John the Baptist says, he must increase and I must decrease, Jesus still fully and readily admits John the Baptist still has a role to play. He is not yet beheaded, and so there is, while he is the forerunner of Christ and has lost many of his disciples to Jesus, as is appropriate, he still has a role to play. He did not want people to imagine that he was against John the Baptist in any way. And so, as we are introduced to the passage, verse 1, When Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, and then we get this little caveat, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, Jesus left Judea and departed again for Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria. And so he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph, and Jacob's well was there. And so Jesus wearied from his journey was sitting beside the well, and it was about the sixth hour. So here's the setting. If you're not familiar with Samaria and Sychar and where all this is, if you have a little Bible map in the back, it's an interesting, fascinating place. Sychar is hemmed in on both sides by two great mountains. They show up in the text to Joshua in the story in Deuteronomy. One of them, Mount Ebal. The other one, Mount Gerizim. These two mountains were used after the conquest of all both Jericho and Ai and everything in the Canaanite districts to on one mountain call out to everyone on the other mountain all the blessings of God. On the other mountain, they were to call out all the curses of God. Back and forth, they read the law, the blessings, the cursings. That was the historical setting of the exact place where Jesus sat in the valley between them. Between the blessings of God and the cursings of God, for both are part of the message. Sychar is placed right in that valley between these two places. Now, I mentioned a few months ago 
that there was actually an archaeological dig on top of Mount Ebal, and do you know what they found? The oldest inscription of Yahweh and his curses towards people who would not follow his commands. A little lead book. Now, we've never seen anything like that. But that is directly from the time of Joshua. Nothing else has occurred there in such a manner. And it follows the exact patterning of everything that had gone down there. And Sychar was built right between those two mountains. Imagine that, if you would. You live in a valley, and on one side, historically is understood that God's curses come from that mountain, and God's blessings come from that mountain. What an an everlasting reminder of the law of God. And so the people in Samaria were not unaware of these things. They were fully aware of them. This was their history as well. Samaritans were not complete foreigners. They were part Jewish and part Assyrian in history, and had set up for themselves a unique role in the northern side of Israel. And they knew this history. And so when they called Jacob their father, they truly could call him their father, for he was. And so could Jesus, and so could his disciples, and so could every other Jew. Trace back to this well. A well that we do not know the story of from the book of Genesis, but a well that makes perfect sense based on what setting and what place it is. So that's the setting. And that gives us a bit of a picture for what's going on here. What is Jesus here to do? It would be very, very simple for him to show up and go, woman, you know your life. You know everything that's going wrong in it. You know all the different men you've been with. You know that the current man you're living with is not your husband. You know all the error. You know all the curses. It comes straight from Scripture. You live in the shadow of the mountain from which they were proclaimed. And furthermore, you're ashamed of it. You know what time you come to this well. You know why you're here. And you did not expect to run into me. He could have pronounced every curse in the law to her. And yet, what do we find? We find a simple request. Give me something to drink. A temporal need fulfilled, depicting an eternal reality for all the people of this world. Verse 7, a woman from Samaria came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Now, I want you to understand, that is very unusual. Jesus had already encouraged his disciples to go into Sychar and buy food. That is not culturally acceptable already. And so when they come back and see him talking to this woman, it is a double frustration. And so they're off buying food in a land that they do not appreciate or agree with. The Samaritan woman said to them, first of all, why are you talking to me? How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? John explains for Greek readers later on, for Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her and said, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have turned around the request and asked him for something to drink. Now what is it that Jesus is getting at here? What is it that this woman is asking? He's saying something very simple to her ears. I'm thirsty. It's noon. We're in the desert. 
give me a drink. Perfectly acceptable question to a very unacceptable hearer. And so she's confused by this. She comes back to him with this, how is it that any of this happens? We're not supposed to be speaking. Not only is it against custom, first of all, for a man to address a strange woman in public, but on top of this, I'm by myself. We're in the wilderness. You're Jewish. I'm Samaritan. You're a rabbi. I'm a woman who's so shamed I can't even be here with other women from Samaria. Why are you talking to me? On one side, she knew that she did not deserve to be talked to. And on another side, she did not want to lower herself to speak to a Jewish person. There was pride on both sides of this, Samaritan and Jewish. Basically, she goes, you have nothing to speak to me about. And what does Jesus do? He defines for us what the right response is to such a request. He says, if you only knew two things, the gift of God and my identity. If you only knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him him, and he would have given you living water. Now, this is a remarkable turn of everything because the first request was simply for a temporal drink something that fills a need that is recognized by all people. And she saw herself in the place of being offering to him something else and said, why are you speaking to me about these things? And Jesus says, if you even knew who you were speaking to, you would have asked me for something to drink. Now, to her eyes, what does this look like? You're obviously heat-stroked. You have nothing to pull out of this well to. That well is still there today. It's 106 feet deep. What are you going to do? You're going to climb down, put it in your hands, climb back up and give me a drink? You have no way of offering what I need. I have my own bucket, thanks. You see the problem. Jesus is making her confused on purpose, so she listens to him. She thinks she holds all the cards. She thinks she holds the answer that both of them need, and she wants answers from him first before she graces him with a bucket full of water. And so what does he respond with? If you but knew me, and if you knew what the gift of God was, you would have asked me for something to drink. She's not getting it. She says, and, and I like to hear a little curt phrasing behind what she says here, sir, you have nothing to draw water with. The well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Where do you get that water that flows? And that's really what living water means. It means flowing water that does not end. It's not just a cup or a bowl or a potsherd filled with water. It's rushing water like a river. That is living water. How are you going to do that? You can't even pull up tepid water. You can't even pull up a cup of water. How could you possibly offer me a river that doesn't end? Whose banks expand out and bring growth from everything around it. Verse 12 is just the most fascinating. It's where we've been making a beeline to. In Greek, it sounds much more like this. You're not greater than our father Jacob, are you? It comes with this, this terse negativity. 
do you actually think you're better than Jacob? Do you actually think you're better than the person that dug this well? The person that dug this well was only able to make stagnant water in the desert. You're telling me that you're offering me a river of water. You must be better than the person that's dug this well. What do you have to say to that, you random person on the road at noontime in the middle of the desert asking from somebody who's not going to give you something with nothing to draw water with, offering a river of water? Do you think you're better than Jacob? Do you think you have this all figured out? Do you think you have living near Sychar figured out? Because I'll tell you what, nobody does. We live in the shadow of the blessings and the cursings of God, and you think you're better than our Father. She says to him, Jacob gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. This has been working just fine. Thank you very much. Have a nice day. Isn't that all you want from a well? Isn't that all you want from thirst? To be able to have a place to go, to quench it when you need it, to not quench it when you don't. It doesn't bother you. It doesn't charge you any taxes to use it. That's probably because that well wasn't in our land. It's not, it's not on any basis inconvenient, although the time that we come out to it, sure, it's a bit inconvenient, but the reality is it never stops. It always has water for us. It's enough for us. This is everything we need. You have no way to even take advantage of it. And she says to him that he drank from it, Jacob drank from it himself, his sons did, all his livestock did. This has been good enough for us for all of these years. And Jesus points out the main problem with temporal thirst you can drink from it and quench it, but it's going to come back. Everyone who drinks this water, Jacob himself and his sons and his livestock and you and everyone else in your town that you're ashamed to be with and everyone else that has ever drank from this for the past 1,500 to 2,000 years that that well had been sitting there, every single one of them thirsted again. That's the problem with temple thirst. You never drink enough water to where you go, you know what, that's enough water for me for the rest of my life, I'm good. You're going to find out that in about a day's time, maybe a day and a half, if you really hold out or if you really overfilled yourself, you're going to be thirsty again. And what Jesus does is take something that every single human knows, that the solutions that we have made for ourselves do not last. The way in which we have sought to avoid the curses of God and to fulfill the blessings of God does not last. Our desire to make up our mind to follow the law of God does not last. As we make up our mind to do better next time, how many of you have recognized the weakness of your own flesh and done worse or done the same? Or the same thing without count. Next time it'll be better. And some of us even have the gall to put that into our repentance. I'm sorry, Lord, for this. Next time it will be better. Do not add lies to your repentance. 
For we understand that the nature of this world shows us that we do not have what it takes to bring about what these things require. The water that satiates thirst without measure and without end cannot be found by digging deeper. Many are the false religions, and nearly every single one of them tells you that the answer to true happiness and true satiated thirst is to just dig the well deeper. More water. Come out to the well more. Pay attention to the laws more. Get more accountability partners, more things, and you too will fix the problems that plague you. And Jesus, of course, is using the metaphor of thirst as sin and guilt And water is the metaphor for salvation. And let us not miss that picture. It is not just Jesus being kind to a woman that he didn't have to be kind to. It is Jesus displaying the gospel that was going to go and start from Judea to Samaria to Antioch to the Roman Empire to the uttermost parts of the earth. Notice that the reality of what Jesus is speaking about is saying, this is not something that you just come here and you drink from this well. What did Jesus say? You are right in saying that I have nothing to draw from this well. I don't need this well. It's not that I don't recognize the importance of this well, the importance of Jacob, the namesake, his sons, or any other thing. Those things played their role, as does this well. But so does this day. And as he's sitting there to interact with her, he's saying there is a reality that water and that thirst pictures that we find in salvation, that we find in guilt, and that we find in an ultimate solution whereby we do not have to come back again. How many of you share the experience? That temptation to think that, well, I've done everything good for a few days, and so God must be more happy with me now. And then what inevitably happens is that your flesh still with you has sins that easily entangle you. You find yourself flat on your face again, and you think the opposite. God must surely be upset with me today. One day I will earn his favor. The next day I will earn his disfavor. My friends, this is not the life of the Christian. That is the life of the person who lives in terror of God. The life of a Christian is quick to repent of the sins that easily entangle us, that we may enjoy the joys of our salvation, but we by no means imagine that our good works puts us in a better standing with God, nor that our bad works threaten the work of Christ. These things cannot be undone by you or I. This is what Jesus says. He does not say, if you drink this water, you might not thirst again. Maybe in like a year. Maybe when you go and just don't think about it very well. No, no, no. He says there is a reality to salvation that is permanence. There is a reality to salvation that will not let you go. 
And so he says to her, whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never thirst again. Instead, the water that I will give him will become inside of him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. He's expressing the reality that salvation is such a thing that it's akin to drinking water that continually sprays up into your mouth constantly feeding you more water. There's no need for salvation anymore. There's no need for water anymore. And think about this effect on our salvation. Think about what Jesus is saying here. What is the way of mankind but to think that he can improve himself by doing good things? It's every false religion in the world. And what Jesus is saying is, look, woman from Samaria, you too are following this. You think that by doing these things or by avoiding these things or maybe by God not paying attention to you, you can get away with living with a man that's not your husband. Not so. Salvation is not by hiding from God. Salvation is not by avoiding his displeasure. Salvation only comes through Christ. We must keep in mind every time we come to a passage like this, why it is John is writing these things. He's wanting every single reader to interact with the reality of who Jesus is and what salvation is brought by trusting in his name. And Jesus says the same thing to her. If you only knew two things, the gift of God and who I am, you would seek from me everything I have to offer here in the desert without something to draw water with as I'm asking you for something to drink. Jesus uses these things as a turnaround on many people. He does the same thing with the feeding of the 5,000 in chapter 6 and then uses it to talk about his flesh as true food. You want the bread? I'm the bread of life. They came back to him, didn't our, didn't our forefathers experience bread in the wilderness? Didn't God provide for them this? Yes, he says, yes, I'm the bread that came out of heaven. Not that manna. You should be asking of me exactly what you asked of the manna, which in Hebrew, manna is just a question. What is it? Of him, you should be asking the same question. Who are you? Because it is his identity and it is the purpose of God that is on display here. And that's exactly why John is including the story to tell us this reality that not is Jesus just thirsty, but that this woman, though she pull every single bucket of water out of here, will always thirst again, no matter how much she draws from this well. A fascinating thing about the Samaritans is that the only part of the scriptures they paid any attention to was the first five books. Genesis, uh, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. That's it. Their own version of it, we still have it. But they missed the prophets, the Psalms, the histories, the writings. They missed all of these things. And so what were they going to be looking for? What were they going to be paying attention for? They were just going to be looking to their own lives for salvation and what's going to come of it? Nothing. 
And Jesus uses this picture to say the same thing. You're going to try to find salvation here in the shadow of these two great mountains by saying, I want the blessings of the Lord, or at least I don't want the cursings of the Lord. Maybe I will just live and quietly not be noticed and let my sins go to the wayside. And if, if nobody else notices, maybe God has turned a blind eye. And what does Jesus say? Don't you know who's sitting in front of you? You spent your life trying to avoid people that would put you to shame because their lives are better than yours, and yet here you run into God in the middle of the desert by yourself. Good luck hiding from him. And he's asking you for a drink, and you mock him. You don't even have anything to pull out of the well with. You're not greater than me. You're not greater than Jacob. You're not greater even than his livestock. That is what she is saying. I will merely point out to you that he does not destroy her on the spot, but instead teaches her who he is. And this is why this story plays such a central role in the Gospel of John. It is John showing us who Jesus is because the reality is all of salvation twists and turns on the identity of Christ. If the Messiah was just going to come into the world and be a political figure that was going to set up the throne of David just as David did and unify the kingdom once more, even maybe those people from Samaria unified with the people in Judah, that would be a salvation far past anyone's expectations. And yet what has happened? But a salvation that pays attention to no border that does not stay in Jerusalem and doesn't just go to Samaria and doesn't just go to Judea in the wildernesses, doesn't just go to Capernaum, doesn't just go to Antioch, doesn't just go to Thessaloniki or Athens or Sparta or Rome, but goes to the uttermost parts of the earth with full disregard of who your father is or who my father is or what country we are or any language that we speak. God sets in his mind that he is going to save his people from their sins. And nothing is going to stop him. And what Jesus is saying here is, every single thing I'm about to tell you, woman, is dependent on the gift of God and my identity. And I want to encourage you as you share the gospel with those in your life, those are the two things that we also share. What is the gift of God and who is Jesus of Nazareth? If our gospel message is something other than that, we're going to find ourselves encouraging people to drop a hose down the well and pull up water for themselves from the law of God. Fix your life. Do something better. Let me give you Jesus as an example. None of these things will satisfy. You will have to keep coming back to that well because you will find yourself thirsting again. Salvation is trusting on Christ only. For salvation from sin, for righteous fulfilling of the law, for joy, for peace, for kindness and faithfulness, all of these things are owed to Christ. And none of them are owed to us. And Jesus uses the picture that he has already equated with the Holy Spirit, this picture of water, and saying, if someone comes to me for this quenching, 
They will never, ever thirst again. But what comes to them will spring up in them and well up in them, is actually the terminology, a spring of living water, a river inside of you, whereby you never have to drink again. Is that not what the Holy Spirit has done for us? Speak to our hearts that we are the children of God, by which we have every right to call out, Abba, Father. You are our God. And it is only by the Holy Spirit that we are able to claim such a thing. It is not because we have made our lives acceptable. It is not because we have avoided sin enough, because not one of us has. It is because the Holy Spirit testifies to our hearts. We are the children of God. Only by Christ and only by what he has done. And he will give his spirit as a down payment for those who trust in him. That they may not despair or thirst or walk guiltily into the presence of the eternal ever again. Instead, they are satiated and so is God. Satisfied and so is God He says, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. You think this well is so great? Let me give you one inside you. Doesn't that sound better? I mean, coming out to this well, a place of shame that she has to come by herself where it's beating down hot to draw out. You ever pulled a bucket of water from 100 feet down? It's not fun. To do it by yourself, less fun. To do it in the heat, less fun even than that. To do it for someone else, even less fun. He says, what if I could put a well inside you where the water just flows and the need goes away, as does the shame, the guilt, and the thirst. There's a tremendous song. I don't recall the, the title off the top of my head. That calls Jesus the Lord of our shame. And is a remarkable title. And it's pulled from passages like this. Where it talks about the reality that we should never imagine that our sin is small. Simply because we want to hide it. Let sin be as magnificently horrific as it is. Do not hide from it. Do not hide it. Do not cover it. Christ is the Lord of our shame. And we'll take it to the cross. And we will never thirst again. Without Christ, I am ashamed of many of the years that I have walked this earth. With Christ, I do not walk in shame. We do not walk in defeat. We do not walk in the darkness, trying to find some way to be happy for another day or another two days or another three days. Those thirsts, those needs are met only in Christ. And to demonstrate that she misses the story, the woman said to him, Sir, That sounds really convenient. Give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. 
I wanted to do this entire passage in a single sermon, but it would be an hour and a half. And I didn't want to try your patience. But the rest of this story sets up the reality that as soon as she says she wants this water, where does Jesus go but her shame? Go get your husband. Why do you think I'm out here at noon? So I don't have to answer questions like that. No, no, no. Go get your husband. She says, no, I don't have one. You're right. Let me display for you everything you've ever done. This is exactly what she says. As soon as he reveals to her that he knows her whole life and still has the absolute gall to speak with her, she is secretly the one dwelling on Mount Ebal, the mountain of shame, the mountain of God's curses. And what does Jesus say? I know exactly who you are, and I know exactly what you need, and I know the shame that you are coming out here with, and I know the weight of sin on your life, and still you come out here to draw water, and you mock those who are out here to interact with you. Let me tell you something. I know your shame. I know your guilt. I know your life, and I am still here with you anyway. There is nothing on this earth that is going to stop Christ from saving his people. Not ethnicity, not cultural norms, not shame, not sin, not the cursings of the law. And so when all those things come at you and you feel this weight of sin and this weight of shame that still comes back to bite you and to drag you back down to the grave. Do not say, I have no shame in what I've done. There is shame. And it goes to the cross. There is guilt. Even now as a Christian, and it goes to the cross. You do not live the Christian life by just trying to be good. You live the Christian life by fixing your gaze onto Christ and saying, yes, all the sins still in my life on a single day, on my best day, would drive my essence to the corners of hell. But for him who stands in my place, on which I have set all of my trust, he will find salvation for me. And where he is, I too will one day be. And there is nothing in this earth that could pull from me the hope that he has worked inside of me. There have been many people in my life, and I imagine in yours as well, that have tried to establish my steps through shame and through guilt. Do not submit to it for a moment. Establish your steps by the path to the cross. Take up your cross, whatever it is, however difficult and however frustrating. Do not set that cross down for a moment. Do not walk another path because it's easier or level. Walk the path to the cross because do you know what happens at the top of that hill? You and I will die with him. That we may be raised with him that we may live with him forever.
our Christ walked a very inconvenient road to teach us that this morning. And he sat in the heat of the day so that we could hear the message of the cross before the cross was on anyone's minds. It is the gift of God. It is the person of Christ. Do not move your gaze from him for a moment, lest the darkness envelop you. We will return to this story. It is simply an overwhelming story to read all at once. But satisfy yourself to say, the Father is seeking people to worship him in spirit and in truth. And Jesus, as he identifies himself in verse 26, is the one who has come to make that possible. Who cares about the top of Mount Zion? Who cares about the top of Mount Gerizim? We have the temple of God walking around in human flesh. And this morning, my friends, for those of you who have placed your faith in Christ, are part of the temple of God made of living stones assembled here this morning in which acceptable worship carried out by the Spirit of God is made. The word of God is heard and the promises of God are hoped in. I pray for all of us this week that God would settle our feet as we walk the path that he has set for us no matter what it will cost, no matter how frustrating, no matter how difficult. Look to Christ for salvation. Look to Christ for solidity. Look to him for satisfaction and find it no other place. Do not find it in days of ease or of comfort, but find a faithful God in the hardest of times and in the easiest of times. For Christ will walk with us both. Let's pray. Our Father, what is leveled for us at the cross is unimaginable to our ears. You've given us the center of hope and the center of faithfulness established only by Christ's person and by your gift. We pray, Father, as these things delight our minds, they fill our hearts. May all within the sound of my voice know this salvation. Do not seek to come back to the law as a way to satisfy you or themselves. But come to the law that you have called out on these mountains, both your blessings and cursings, and to live in the delight of doing them as fulfilled works on their behalf that the law becomes for us, as your word says, a law of liberty, that the gospel becomes the center of our joy, and that our fellowship fill our expectations with what we will see in heaven. Our Father, we pray that you delight our hearts this day with your word. In your Son's name, 